Here we are now with episode number four in our series. I just had to check the number. Impressions of Grace and Grip. Well, episode, we've been calling them chapters because we're going chapter by chapter. So it's chapter number four and the title is A Question of Balance. Do you have a balanced life? Do you know what a balanced life means? Do you know what it means to bring all the stuff of life into balance? Is that a priority of yours? Surely it's something you wouldn't say no to if it was offered to you. I think most people would agree that, sure, balance is a good thing. If you want to have a balanced life. But is a balanced life like a balanced diet? Or are they the same thing, really? Life is diet, and diet is life. Well, let's find out. Let's see what's happening in this story as we make our way through the plot. And Ken and Trey are in the doctor's room, and the doctor is laying out some options for them. Wonderful options. Here are your options. You are able to choose. Yes, you have a choice. The removal of lymph nodes. The removing of part of the lymph nodes. Treating the breast with radiation implants. Segmental or partial mastectomy, removing about one quarter of the breast tissue, removal of about a portion of the lymph nodes, five or six weeks of radiation to the breast area, segmental macostomy, removal of all of the lymph nodes. Well, these are your options. And Ken is sort of sitting there listening to this and he thinks, well, This is sort of like we're calmly discussing medieval torture techniques. Oh yes, ma'am, we're having something lovely in a size 8 Iron Maiden. You know what an Iron Maiden is? I didn't. I had to look it up because when I think of the words Iron Maiden, I think of the heavy metal band. And an Iron Maiden was basically this kind of chamber which is about the size of your body, which has spikes in it. And it's got this door on the front and spikes in the door and you close the door and you get jammed on the spikes. And there was some sort of conjecture that this was an actual torture device to use in a certain part of history, but it turned out to be a fictional thing. But then again, I guess... There are many awful things in human history of that nature, so it's sort of believable that someone somewhere would have invented such a thing. I mean, they used to have the stockades, and we used to hang people. Do you believe it? Oh, just wonderful the human race is. So their plan is to basically do the white man treatment basically scientific cancer treatment because the cancer that she's got is like the Nazi of the cancer crowd. It's not really impressed with grass juice and thinking happy thoughts. You really have to go at it, as the doctors have said, if you want to have any chance at all. So they're first and foremost doing Western medicine. And then on the other side, having sort of supplementary, unorthodox treatments, holistic practitioners' advice. And this might be visualizations or things like that. And there's a lot of details in, well, well, the actual science of it. Because you could say that, well, say you go to your holistic practitioner and they say, no, the radiation is going to be doing terrible things for your immune system, because it will lower your white blood cell count. And that's true. But on the other side, well, 
can you actually make a connection between lower number of white blood cells and the quality of white blood cells, which is mostly temporary, however. So the slight long-term reduction has been correlated with immune deficiency simply because there's no direct link between quality and quantity of white blood cells, which affects the immune system. So that's a tricky that's a tricky little detail there that, well, it's a bit hard to know that you need to drill into it. Like it could be that the doctor's just giving you information like, oh, this will lower your white blood cell count. And you might not even realize that you have to actually inquire and ask more. And then another thing they say is that when you go to a holistic practitioner or an alternative medicine, they often say, well, you shouldn't have done the Western medicine. And then they say, well, the holistic treatments don't work because you didn't come to us first. Well, people die because they did the white man scientific therapy, which is a little bit convenient. It's a little bit like we need to maintain an amount of skepticism there. And so they go to hospital and Ken also sleeps over and they have some treatment and they do some more surgery and Treya begins to recover and they have Christmas, they do some shopping, she reads some books. She also mentions that she wants to write in her journal more and see her friends more and she's got a great circle of friends. And the immediate impact of all this was psychological because she started to grow a resentment of what she was always calling, Treya, her life's work. Namely, what was she here to do? What was the point of her life? And the way she explains it to Ken is that this issue centers around doing versus being. And she's very good in how she talks about this. And Ken even makes a note that Treya is the the speaker of the terms and the ways that we come at these. And, well, he says that the traditional association of masculine with doing, with the mind, with heaven, logic, and the feminine with being, the body, with the earth, are two sides of, well, feminine masculine, the polarity. And needless to say, these are not hard and fast divisions, he says, but personal preferences, nor does it imply that men can't be, or women can't be, and men can't do, and women can't do. So this whole thing of being and doing, feminine and masculine, needs to be separated from man and woman. And when we put things into these broad categories of feminine and masculine, there's a, there's a degree of flexibility because the earth or the body, well, depending on how you're looking at that, it could be feminine or masculine. So Ken points this out and he says, well, these are just the terms and the way Treya has of talking about it, so they're not hard and fast. In essence, doing values are values of producing something. It's the work, it's the aggressive, it's competitive. They're all about working towards the future. They manipulate reality. They're all about trying to change the present into a better tomorrow. That's doing. That's masculine. Whereas being values, when you are more oriented or centered in being, which is feminine, is about embracing the presence, present, the presence of your surroundings. 
That means valuing a person for what they are, not what they can do, or not what they're going to do, or what work or capabilities or skills they have. The relationship is of inclusion, compassion, and care. And this is a vital dichotomy, a vital polarity to understand. It's doing and being. And both of them, well, you need both. We come back to this question again of, well, which one is it? And the answer is always both. And for Treya, she recognizes this and she reflects on this. And she realizes that she needs to come back to her feminine side. And in fact, this, well, this goes along with her name because her name was Terry. And she changed her name from Terry to Treya because she felt Terry, well, that's a man's name. And when she's reflecting on these, she thinks, well, why, why has she tried so hard so much of her life to be more masculine and be in the more doing side of things? And she looks at her upbringing. She's, well, she's from Texas. And there was this sort of cultural image of, in Texas, the, the men go out and they do the real work and they produce things like an engineer or a construction or whatever it's sort of hands-on work and the women were the housewives and they would stay home and cook and take care of things and Treya really didn't like that she didn't like that idea of the feminine she didn't like that as a picture of what a woman is supposed to do she didn't like that as a model of being so for so much of her life she's been working against that And now that she's reflecting on it, and she's really looking at her work, and she's facing cancer, well, now she can come into this with a bit more maturity, of a bit of a different idea. And for her, it comes down to two things. One is, sort of ironically, is that she wants to take care of her man. She wants to support Ken. She wants to support his work, without losing her autonomy, without letting the old fear die away slowly as she grows into the work. But she just feels that, well, it's no longer a situation where it's like the Texas housewife that she's rebelling against. That sort of housewife with Ken is very different. And actually, it turns out that, well, Ken is actually more of the feminine because he does the cooking and he does the caring for a lot of this story. But still, she needs to be aware of her sense of caring for him and support for him. And then the second element is that she wants to be writing a book on her experience with cancer. She has all sorts of ideas. She has ways of collating all the theories of healing. She can collect interviews. She can go into body-mind connection. She can interview other patients, people that she's met. Like this whole knowledge of what she's been through so far is something she wants to share. And it's really just in the early stages. These are really just ideas. And this is something that comes up again and again. Something that evolves as life unfolds. So she's really just in her early stages of reflecting on being and doing. And right on cue, Ken comes in with his beautiful explanation, with his big brain. And he has a way of saying it like this. Work or the search for work is what we could call the daemon, which is a Greek word that comes from classical mythology and refers to the god within. It's your own inner deity, your guiding spirit, a sense of purpose. 
It's also known as the genie or the genii or the jinn. And there's a reason why genius, it's sort of funny that we have this word genius and genie. So genie in the bottle, the big blue smoky ghost that comes out and grants you three wishes. There's that sort of genie. And then there's the genius, which is, wow, that person really excels. And I wonder, it would be funny to know where that split occurred in mythological history of the genius and the genie. Because what can the genie do? The genie is all-powerful. The genie can grant you anything. The genie can morph into any shape. And yet somehow also they're stuck. The genie is entrapped because they're inside this bottle. And they, they can only come out once you awaken it. You have to rub the lamp or you have to find the, you have to find the bottle. So the, the genie in the lamp is really rare. It's really like, wow, you have to search and search and search. And it's this small thing. But it's so valuable and so important that once you find it, you'll have all the powers. Everything will be great. Everything will be able to unfold for you once you find the genie in the bottle. So that's the daemon. And Ken says, well, he's found his daemon. He knew it. He knows what he wants to accomplish. He knows what it means for him to express his own higher self. He has no hesitation at all about it. And he says he found it two paragraphs in to writing his first novel when he was 23 years old. And he describes it as coming home, finding himself, finding his purpose, finding his God. And he never doubted it once since then. So they're two very different situations for Treyer and Ken. One person has found it. One person is still looking for it. He also goes on to mention that, well... There's another side to the daemon, which is that if you hear it and you don't respond, the daemon becomes the demon or the evil spirit. The divine energy and talent degenerates into self-destructive activity. And he says the Christian mystics, for example, say that the flames of hell are but God's love denied, angels reduced to demons. So what are demons? Well, they're fallen angels. And it's funny that devil and divine have a similar sound to them. I'm sure there's a linguistic or or an etymology there which reveals something about why demon, well, demon and daemon, that's very similar sounding, and devil and evil, that's very similar sounding. So devil, divine, evil, daemon, demon, they're all very closely related. They're all like the yin-yang. They're all like the two sides of the same coin. So keep that in mind. That's important. So consider this. I mean, there's there's another example he gives, which is that... Ken is talking to one of his friends and he says, well, I found my inner demon and I'm working really hard to keep it alive and to honor it. And his friend says, well, yeah, I work to keep the the pain away of not honoring it. So there's another complex there is how you relate to this dynamic of hearing your inner voice and honoring it. And Treya, well, she has other hang-ups. She hasn't found her demon, daemon, or her demon, or the work she really wants to do. And she thinks sometimes the problem is that, well, she doesn't believe she could really get good at something. She has an inflated idea of how good others are. And there is something in that. The picture she draws is that 
She wants the bush. She wants the tree. But she's been too impatient to plant the seeds, pick the sprouts that are powerful, that are coming up, and to cultivate them and to carefully nourish them. When you're growing a big tree, you have to be very, very careful in its first stages. When you're growing a big tree, you have to plan ahead. You have to have a long-term vision. And she says she needs to learn how to read the depths of her being, find her own guidance and daemon. She doesn't want to have a life without some kind of faith in a greater purpose, even if it is only evolution. She doesn't want to let any anger on her part diminish her mystical experiences and their power to change people in any way. So you can get a sense of your inner demon, the evil side, when you notice a resentment coming up for the things you haven't done or the things you tell yourself you could have done. And that is a tricky one. That is a, that is a real tricky one. That phrase, oh, I could have done that. Oh, I could have done that. I could have done that. You hear that more in the pub in older people. Oh, I could have been that. I could have done that. I had my chance. I had an opportunity there. And that says something. Be on the lookout for that. Whenever you think, oh, I could have done that. So another side of this is, well, Treya is in and out of these doctor's appointments and these hospital visits. And one of these doctors is, well, a likable man, but he's a bit intellectually intense. And he comes across as a bit blunt sometimes, or even a little bit cold, which is a false impression because he's a good man and Treyer and Ken know him. But nonetheless, it's just a little bit tough. And Treyer used this as, well, her opportunity to be tough with them, to be a man, to really take a stand and take control of her situations and her interactions with doctors. She says, they don't give you the whip. You have to push and ask and push. And above all, don't feel foolish. And especially don't be put off by their air of busyness, the feeling that their time is so valuable they can hardly answer questions. It's your life at stake. Ask your questions. End quote. So she's saying that when you turn up to the doctors, you really do have to You've sort of got to be on your game. And many people work, well, they just look busy, but they're not really busy. And a lot of the time in social interactions or face-to-face, human-to-human interactions where you're in the same room, there's a distraction in someone. Or someone is just distracted because they feel uncomfortable with the situation. And sometimes you just have to snap them out of it And say, look, here, I need these questions answered. I need you to tell me these things. Because again, like we've said before, they might just not say. The information might be there, but the doctor might never think to say that it's important. Because doctors are, after all, they're only human. They're only doing the best they can. So Ken is doing the megavitamin therapy because he's a trained biochemist. So he gets these batches of 50 nutrients and mixes them up in the kitchen sink. And he's sort of, there's this funny image of him dancing around like a mad scientist. And he's also doing some cooking 
because he's doing some pretty delicate diet stuff for her as well, and he's a really good cook, and also she's he's keeping her laughing. There's some lightheartedness there, so it's not all doom and gloom all of the time. Like they still have a relationship. They're still they're still in love. They still have each other. And one day she she comes home and he asked him, "Well, how how are you doing, Ken?" And he says, "Oh Christ, horrible day. Smashed the car, burnt the dinner, beat my wife." Oh, hell, I forgot to beat my wife. And then he starts chasing her around the kitchen table. (laughs) Isn't that just cute? Isn't that just lovely? So there is some glow in there. And Ken adds that, well, this sort of taking charge attitude... It also needs to be done in the same way. It needs to be balanced on the other side of, well, letting someone how to, letting someone else take control or letting someone have their way and accepting someone and surrendering and going with the flow and not resisting and not fighting, letting go versus taking control, which is just another version of being versus doing. And then we get the big one. We get, well, how about this for balance? Balance the will to live with the acceptance of death. So this is a tricky one. And Treyer is friends with this guy, Jerry Jemplowski, Jempol- Jempolski, who wrote several books based on A Course of Mir- a course in Miracles. So have you heard of this? This is pretty famous, A Course of Miracles. It's quite a big book. It's written by Helen Schumann. And the story goes that she dictated it from the voice of God, or by listening to the inner voice of God and Jesus. And, well, there's been a lot of criticism for it, obviously. It's been called wishy-washy, sort of religious fluff, or New Age pseudoscience, or pseudo-psychology. And yet it also has sold millions of copies, and had millions of... Tens of thousands, well, I don't know about millions, but maybe tens of thousands of testimonials said about it. It's a, had its influence, it's had its day. So, The Course in Miracles, and it's not like a conventional book where you just read it cover to cover. It's like a course, so it's got different parts. So the first part is like the textbook, which is like a system of truth and explanations of God and love and your own inner psychology and time and space and these sorts of things. And also it goes into perception and these sorts of things. And then the second part is like a workbook. second part is a workbook, which has 365 lessons. So you can do one per day for a year. And then the third part, there's a manual for teachers. So that's like a question and answer style way for you to become a teacher, for you to become a leader in the spiritual field. So I haven't done this course in miracles. I'm sort of curious now because it keeps popping up on my radar. Maybe I'm just hanging out with too many new age buffs or I'm reading too many new age books like Grace and Grit. Well, I don't. I, I wouldn't say Grace and Grit is just new age. I mean, we're touching on it here. But the reason it comes up for Treya is because she's got this friend who's, well, in with the Course in Miracle crowd, and he's talking about let go and let God. That's the phrase. When you're all caught up in doing, you're all caught up in effort. When you're stuck in that masculine place, Just say, let go and let God. There's also chapters on forgiveness. 
And that's a big one. Forgiveness is a big one. Because you have to forgive yourself. You need to accept yourself. And for Treya, that's hard. She's had a lot of self-criticism. She's been hard on herself. A lot of her problems have been about herself being hard on herself. So forgiving others as a step towards forgiving yourself is very important. And that's covered in A Course in Miracles. And she says that she used to write down nice things that people would say about her because she found it hard to believe. And there's a sort of contradiction there because she knows she's intelligent. She knows she's pretty. She knows she's got great friends. And yet there's this other side of her. How could someone really love her? Particularly a man. And it's not like she hasn't done anything. She's actually done a lot of work. She actually has accomplished a lot. So it's not like she's sitting around thinking... She's not like us common folk who are sitting around thinking, oh, what's my life purpose? I haven't done anything with my life. <laughs> Maybe that's you and me. Well, I can't speak for you. Maybe I'll speak for myself only in this, on this point. But she's actually done a lot. Well, she's got a master's degree in psychology counseling. She's been on, the, on this, you know, on boards. She's been facilitating things. She's done youth exchange program facilitation. She's founded a institute, not an institute, a foundation or something. And then she's also actually done writings on cancer, which alone would reach an estimated one million people around the world. So that's before this book. So it's not like her writings have come out just in this book, Grace and Grit. No, she's actually been a writer before then. And... During this first year, they sort of have this conversation over and over again, which is, you know, Ken says, well, do you see why I love you? Or can't you believe that I love you? Are you kidding me? I totally love you, sweetie. And it's sort of this back and forth. And that's the funny thing about being in a relationship, because when you meet the man or the woman, your self-doubt and your self-criticism is right under the microscope because all of a sudden you have someone in your face saying you are beautiful you are wonderful i love you you're precious you're intelligent all these wonderful things and at first well that's great at first we all like that but then it starts to rub up with your self-image And to the extent that you can believe that you are beautiful is the extent of how much tension there's going to be in these comments. How much it's going to grate up against your self-image. So if you really suffer with self-image issues and you have a lot of self-criticism and someone comes along and says, oh, you're really beautiful, I really love you. They're going to say, oh, I don't believe you. And they say, no, really, really, I do believe you. I do love you. I do. You've got to believe me. They say, no, you're, you're a liar. How could you say such a thing? And then back and forth it goes. And then they say, oh, you, you know what? You're, you're right. I don't believe you. And then you turn around and say, see, I told you. That is correct. <laughs> you're ugly. I knew it. You see, this proves it. This proves that I was right. <laughs> so that's a that's sort of like a comic version or a cartoon version of this dynamic of the self-image coming into light when you have an intimate relationship, when you find that significant other. And here, well, it's happening with Ken and Treya. Because Ken is just, she, he adores her. And she says, well, it's like 
having that inner, that younger girl in her, that hole in her center that is just aching to be validated. She wants to know if it's true. She wants to know if he'll stick around. And when she asks him if he's going to be around, he always says, hell, kid, I don't know. Ask me in 20 years. (laughs) So that's another very cute way of answering that question. But the thing is, think about, think this through. She can either, she can either worry that Ken's going to leave and that, well, he doesn't really like her until time unfolds enough until, well, okay, he's probably, he probably is going to stick around or she can actually face the issue. Because this option A of just waiting around, it, it doesn't seem to have a resolution. Like, what is she going to do? Is, is she actually going to wait? Is it going to be like, oh, after 20 years, oh, you were going to stick around. Oh, you really do love me. Oh, you really did mean the things that you said. Well, now you've just wasted your 20 years in not believing them, haven't you? If only you could have believed. If only you could have faced the issue right on. And she does. She's Treya. She's a beautiful soul. She's very aware of these things. And she knows how to let things just be. To let go and let God. She's living more fully, but less and less tentatively. She's being kinder to herself. And she's giving up much of the self-criticism and the unlovability. And she puts it quite simply that, well, life is easier with this attitude. And with this whole thing of doing and being and self-criticism and accepting love and forgiveness and finding the inner guiding voice. It's all summed up very nicely in this prayer that Treya has written. And they call this a time-honored wisdom sort of prayer because it's, it's not a personal prayer. It's more of like a perennial philosophy kind of prayer, which means it's, well, anyone can use it and it's timeless. And you'll see why. So let me read it to you. And this is the prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. The courage to change the things I can. And the wisdom to know the difference. So they spend the summer together, and Ken does some more writing, and they meet lots of friends as well. So this time he's writing Transformations of Consciousness, Contemplative and Conventional Practices on Personal Development, and there are some co-authors there as well. And basically this book, I haven't read it, but it's, it's one of his earlier works on combining the West and the East spiritual model. So you've got like Freud, cognitive, linguistic, object, relational kind of psychology on one side, and then the Western mystics on the other side, and you put them, sort of glue them together to make one spectrum. And then you can see how things evolve from body to mind to soul to spirit. And one of the applications of this is, well, working out, how to treat different types of neuroses and what level they develop them on and really starting to pinpoint what methods work for which things correctly. Because half the trick, and this is 
this sort of is the birth of some very some very deep stuff that Wilbur is yet at this stage to work out. He hasn't written sex ecology spirituality at this stage in his career, but he's starting to have this is where the seed starts, which is sort of like a a meta theory of indexing all other theories. It's sort of like a theory of theories. And this idea of working out which types of neuroses and which types of methods go hand in hand and are appropriate for each other or appropriate for working with each other is the start of really getting into a big picture sort of theory. And then he also talks about his own personal meditation, which is, he says at this stage, he he can't sustain the awareness of like the God awareness or the slip into the all for very long. He's still a novice in his mystical practice. And together, as a duet, as like, I guess, tantra partners, they can, well, maybe not even tantra partners, but it's like a Shiva Shakti sort of thing that they've got going. They can enter into the whole by just embracing each other, but it would soon fade, so they're not there yet. And... There's this video, there's this famous video of Ken Wilber on the internet where he's hooked himself up to an EEG machine, which is basically this thing that puts all these electrodes on your skull. And it looks like you're a mad scientist a little bit. <laughs> and that then goes into a machine which has these little red lights which measure the wavelengths or the electricity signal signals in your brain and well basically you've got alpha gamma beta theta delta if i'm not mistaken delta gamma beta alpha i might i might have got one of those wrong doesn't matter anyway the basic thing is that there's four or five certain brain wave levels and ken wilbur hooks himself up to this eeg machine And he's doing these certain meditative practices and demonstrating how he can lower the brain waves. He can literally turn off his brain. And I think the video is actually called something something funny like Ken Wilber stops his brain. And there's one where he gets all of the all of them down to just zero. And it's really something to witness. It's really something to see. And I don't know at what point in his meditative path he was when he recorded that, but here he's talking about, well, that slipping into one, it's something that he's had little tastes of, but he can't sustain it for very long. And then we also have, well, Treya's going along with her year and basically there's a lot of stress in knowing you're a cancer patient and in the unknown and this comes up again and again because say you wake up in the morning and you have a headache or your joints hurt or you have a sore throat then you and me well we just sort of say oh I've got a headache I'll just have a little bit more water I'll just get on with it and it will it will pass However, if you're Treya at this point in our story, then these symptoms might mean you've got a brain tumor or a bone metastasis or a possible throat cancer. So every little twinge in the body can have an ominous sort of feeling to it. It's like a threatening thing, like, what was that? Can I trust my body? And this really is important because in cancer, early detection is critical. Early detection is very much a factor to how well you can survive, how well you can treat it, how well you can take a course of action. So to have this worry in the relationship puts Treya into 
feeling like she has to be real with herself. She has to keep her rational mind and her worry in check. She has to be using her rational mind because she can either take a course in action and say, okay, I'm going to call the doctor with this symptom or she can say, I'm just going to wait until my next doctor's appointment, which probably won't be very long. Or I can talk to Ken about it rationally and really think it through and really do it in a calm, hands-on, like can-do attitude kind of way. And this is where doing and being comes into it because if she just wallows in it and she's just saying, oh, I'm just going to accept it or I'm just letting the, the cloud in the back of my mind grow and fester, letting it brood, well, then it's going to come out in little things. It's going to come out in little comments in the relationship. And so she goes to the doctor and talks to the doctor. And another thing he says is, well, you also got to get good on your diet. So she, now she's on this sort of, I call this a sort of a super diet. This is like... Check this out. This is what she's meant to be eating, according to the doctor. Eat only vegetables, fruit, and whole grains. Be sure to wash everything well to get the pesticides off. Don't drink chlorinated water. Don't eat meat because of the hormones and antibiotics animals are fed. Though whitefish every so often is fine. And start exercising again. Take as much Buffed vitamin C as your body can handle to help your allergies. Don't take antihistamines unless you really need to. They only mask your symptoms. Be careful of yeast-based vitamins, especially the B vitamins, since people with allergies usually react to yeast. Use hypoallergenetic vitamins. Take, take acidophilus. Wow, what a diet, what a prescription. It sounds complicated. <laughs> I mean, the only thing that I can tick off on that is that I'm vegetarian. <laughs> and I had a phase where I was going into the vitamins. I, I sometimes take vitamin C or fish oil, just basic stuff. But that's a pretty big list of things to work on. That's a pre pretty big list of things to do. So she's meant to be doing this crazy diet. She's got her routine. She's balancing her doing and being. She's working with her self-image. She's also doing visualizations. She's doing a whole bunch of things and also trying to find her life purpose, trying to work things out for what work she wants to do. And then she's also reflecting on death and she says that when she first found out she had breast cancer her attitude was sort of ah well if i'm gonna die it's bound to happen sometimes so it's gonna happen anyway which is sort of a pretty well i don't know is that is that a really mature response she finds very quick finds out very quickly and she as she talks to more people that accepting death as a position, could be dangerous. And this is how, well, the will to live and the doing-being dichotomy comes into it. Because if she doesn't have a will to live, she might actually be bringing death upon herself more earlier. But then again, on the other hand, if she's afraid of death, then she'll be extremely cautious and worried in life. So this whole thing of death and life, this whole thing of living and dying, it's a dichotomy that's, well, and she points out that, you know, this is where we get into existential philosophy. But this is something you have to understand. Because look at it, look at it this way. If you're afraid, then you're living very cautiously. You're never taking any chances. You're worried that something might happen. You put yourself into a cocoon. So the more you fear death, in a way, the more you fear life and the less you live. Now, that's not a, 
I always have to say this is what I, this is what comes to mind when I hear this sort of philosophical talk as well. Live fearlessly. Let's do a whole bunch of thrill-seeking activities. <laughs> there's a there's a difference between adrenaline pumping activities and thrill th- thrill-seeking sports and living fearlessly. That's also a we can add that as like a third component or a third part to our dichotomy of fear and death or life and death. So the the grasp that she has for thinking either or, like things are mutually exclusive, like oh, she either wants to live or she wants to have a will to live or she wants to live or she wants to die, starts to diminish and she has a light touch. And this allows her to have a sort of both and kind of attitude. And she can both desire to live and be willing to let go when the time comes. So like balancing on the razor, the trying effort, concentrating discipline, while at the same time remaining open and allowing and relaxing and being, has a back and forth. There's a fluidity there within her. And another thing she says is that she knows she's out of balance, which is most of the time, when she becomes aware of the effort or when she slides into laziness. So when you're exerting too much effort, go to being. And when you slide into laziness, go to doing. And that's a pretty good example of how the inner world can have these contradictions which are there, they're all in all of us, and yet they need to be resolved in their own ways. And resolving is not always as simple as, oh, just pick one or the other. It's a matter of balance. And then there's this scene where Ken's in the kitchen with his friend, And they're arguing about mysticism. And it's sort of a playful back and forth argument. And his friend is saying, look, you're a really good writer, but your whole position is self-contradictory. Because you say that mysticism is, well, being one with the whole. But if I become one with the whole, then there's nothing left for me to do as an individual. I might as well roll over and die. Humans are individuals, not wholes. So if I become one with the all, then I don't need to eat or do anything. And then Ken's sort of like listening to this on the other side, but he's got a pretty good answer, which is that whole and part are not mutually exclusive. Mystics still feel pain and hunger and laugh and joy, laughter and joy. To be part of the larger whole does not mean that the part evaporates. It's just that the part finds its grounding or its meaning in somewhere else, something else. You are an individual, yet you also feel that you are a part of the larger unit of a family, which is part of the larger unit of a community, which is part of the larger unit of a society. You already feel that you already feel that you are part of several larger wholes. And those holes give you your value and meaning. And mysticism, well, it's just taking this same thing and making it into an even larger whole, an even larger identity. And so you find that feeling of the cosmos. You get that meaning and that value from something deeper, something greater. And they sort of argue back and forth, and that's how it goes with 
very smart friends and very smart people. That's just what they sit around the dinner table talking about. And then something happens which has an enormous impact on their relationship, Ken and Treya. And that is that Treya gets pregnant. And this is complicated. This is tricky. Because pregnancy is a very complex process. There are hormonal changes, there are immune system changes. There's the whole shebang when a woman gets pregnant. It's a whole process. And it's very complicated. And they find out very quickly that the doctors unanimously agree that she must have an abortion as soon as possible. And this is really tricky. This is really tricky. And it's like, well, of course, of course, if you've got this cancer, which is only going to spread and get worse, if you go through the process of pregnancy, then you need to have an abortion. But then there's also Ken's reaction. She's a little bit upset because she thinks, well, are you not thrilled? Are you not keen? Are you not, you don't want to have a baby? And it really makes things, well, it's like, here's another issue that's been brought straight to the surface. Do you want kids? Now, if you're not pregnant, then the issue of do you want kids with your partner or not, well, there's only so much that you can say in that situation. Whereas if you are pregnant, well, then that conversation is going to be very different between you and your partner. And for Treya, well, this is very tricky, you know, like pregnancy and abortion, life and death, as if they need more of that. She's already been working so hard to understand life and death. And one gynecologist says that, well, she should never get pregnant because of the tumour she's had. And yet another one says, well, if she's cancer-free for two years, then she can get pregnant again. And the process of an abortion is, well, it's a traumatic experience, but she understands it's the right decision. And it makes her realise, well, how much she really wanted a child makes her realise how important it was to her. And for Ken, well, he sort of says, most men, well, they just get really scared when they find out their missus is pregnant. They've just got varying degrees of panic in them. They don't really get excited until that moment when they hold the baby and then they become wonderful fathers and they become very happy. And there is something in timing. Because women have a glow when they're pregnant, you know, it's right in them. It's their body. It is them in many ways. But for a man, there's something a bit more detached to it. But it can bring up, well, this thing of, do you really want to be with me? Do you really want to start a family? And when that question comes up at a certain age, and remember these folks are older, Trey is 36, 37 at this age, at this stage of the story. And if you think, well, you don't want to have kids, then well, we need to assess our values. We need to assess our whole relationship. And would Trey say, well, I'm going to leave you if you don't want kids? I mean, they share this extraordinary love, but you want to give that up? How hard would it be to convince you that it's not the right thing to have kids? Considering that you've had cancer 
considering that, well, it's not right for us as a couple. But of course, Ken is very open to it. He loves kids. And he even says, well, his emotional development is at about the level of a kid. So (laughs) he's not taking a hard stance. He actually says, well, let's do it. Let's get you better and let's do it. He's very keen. And I do get the impression that, well, they didn't expect it. It was very much out of the blue, and that's a big factor as well. Many pregnancies, even between couples, long-term couples, solid couples, are still by surprise. They're still taken by surprise. So there's a lot of back and forth there. There's a lot of dynamics there. And this is in the background of, well, cancer treatments and worrying about your symptoms and finding your life purpose and balancing masculine and feminine and doing and being and life and death and, oh, and also they're in love and they've got this incredible relationship and they're in this beautiful place. And they've got this diet, she's got this routine, she's got all her vitamins to do, she's got her meditation to do, she's writing her journals, like, whoa, what a whirlwind. So they decide to move house. And they move to a lake just out of San Francisco. And that step of moving to a new house Buying a house and settling down and getting a big house is the step of, okay, we're in this together, we're in it for the long term, and because we've got a big house, we can start a family. So let's think long term, and let's really start to get on with things. And they move house, and for the first time after that first year of being together, they begin to relax. (laughs) So, it looks like things are starting to come into the clear. Things are starting to be okay for now. And they've been through a lot already. But they're starting to relax. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is, well, a matter of balance. That is how you balance your life, your own inner psychologies, your own inner dichotomies, both personal and existential. So the question of balance, well, how do you feel now? Is your life balanced? (laughs) Do you have a balanced life? Have you found your daemon? Have you balanced your doing and being? That's the question of balance. It was a heavy metal album that I liked by the band of Shadows Fall called The Art of Balance. I think it was a late 90s thrash metal band. Very obscure. Very eccentric tastes. But this is just babble. So we'll be back soon with the next chapter. And that is all that we can say for now on the story of Grace and Grit. I sincerely hope you've enjoyed. Have a beautiful day. And we can sit in silence for a few minutes. And that's all I have to say for now. <laughs>